So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What about how dark your baby is going to be? It was event television that we rarely see these days. Oprah Winfrey's interview with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex contained a succession of bombshells that drew a staggering 17 million viewers when it aired on the 7th of March in the US. Shown in the UK a day later, a further 11 million Brits tuned in. By now, the revelations are well known. Meghan struggles with her mental health during pregnancy, the questioning by another royal about Archie's complexion, Prince Harry's rift with his father and brother, and the gender reveal that their next child is a girl. But we wanted to go beyond the Team Windsor-Sussex squad division and talk today about what this interview tells us about the relationship between royals and the media. After all, the Duke and Duchess are not the first to go to the media to put across their point of view. Harry's own father admitted his adultery back in the 1990s to Jonathan Dimbleby on ITV. Did you try to be faithful and honourable to your wife when you took on the vow of marriage? Yes, absolutely. And you were? Yes. Until it became irretrievably broken down. The interview that really changed the narrative, however, was Diana Princess of Wales' explosive conversation with Martin Bashir on Panorama, where she confirmed many rumours that had been previously reported. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. But while Diana's interview was widely seen as a triumph, there are perils when the royals succumb to the confessional interview, as Harry's uncle, Prince Andrew, found out when he spoke to Emily Maitlis from Newsnight about his friendship with the child sex offender, Jeffrey Epstein. Here he is explaining his alibi, proving why he couldn't have had sex with a 17-year-old girl on one particular night. Uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a Pizza Express in Woking, why would you remember that so specifically? Why would you remember a, a Pizza Express birthday and being at home? Because going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. In the case of Meghan and Harry's interview, the focus has been on how they feel they were treated by two powerful institutions, the royal family and the British press. How should royals be reported on? Were the Sussexes naive or justified in their criticisms? What role did race play in the coverage of Meghan? Were she and her sister-in-law portrayed as two different archetypes? And why was Oprah, who would not describe herself as a journalist per se, so successful in getting scoops from the couple? Welcome to The Know How, a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper, and I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. Today, we're joined by three guests to talk about the royals and their relationship to the media. Dr. Hannah Yellen is a senior lecturer in media and culture at Oxford Brookes University, and she's just co-edited the publication Race, Royalty and Meghan Markle, Elites, Inequalities and a Woman in the Public Eye. Miriam Odonka is a freelance journalist who's reported on black women's reaction to Megxit. And Carla Adam is the London correspondent for the Washington Post, who's been reporting back to the US 
about British reaction. I'd like to begin just by uh, talking about whether the coverage of Meghan and Harry, but particularly Meghan, has changed um, since she entered public life as the girlfriend, fiancé, and then wife of, um, of Prince Harry. Hannah, if I could just begin by talking to asking you a question here. Um, before the wedding, what was the coverage of Meghan like? So at the very beginning, it was yeah, rhapsodic. It, like Meghan was the most loved figure in our press for a period. And I think there are many, many reasons why that didn't sustain. One of them was clearly uh, the, you know, the racism endemic in Britain bubbled to the surface. Um, you know, the implicit became explicit. But also, women in the public eye in the British press are, you know, do get, you know, we, we like to pull them down. There's also a heteropatriarchal element to it where when she was just a, a kind of romance love story, we, we love that. We love the kind of courting period. But it was a you know, similar trajectory for Diana and to a lesser extent because she, you know, as Hilary Mantle had a fantastic piece about the, the blandness of Kate Middleton that made her just a, a vessel for projection onto. Um, so to a, a lesser extent there and also there's no racist dimension there. So it's not unusual that there would be a, a, a tidal wave. But what this kind of pivot showed was there's all of the, so Meg, Megan was a kind of flashpoint for a number of culture wars that was happening in the UK about our image of whether or not we were you know, the kind of multicultural country that Labour had paid lip service to you know, 10 years ago, or whether the rise of Farage and, and, and Brexit was happening because we're actually fundamentally racist. And Megan became this representation, this nexus of all of those discussions and that burden, I cannot imagine the weight of that kind of burden of, of signification because underneath it all there is a real person. But she was this, this kind of tidal wave of discourse and debate um, about how Britain sees itself. And there's been a number of pivots, but the, the biggest one was the fall from, hooray, here comes this feminist and it's proof that the, the monarchy is, is, uh, is modernising to uh, out damn villain, um, you know, you don't represent us. Miriam, has there been positive coverage of Meghan that you remember? Yeah, there's definitely been a positive coverage of Meghan. Uh, even they said in the interview at the beginning, it was better than they expected. There was this kind of newness and something exciting. And I think there was the element that she was, you know, a person of colour. And for, for a bit, it seemed like, oh, there's this new inclusivity and diversity happening in the royal family. And, you know, it's all, <laughs> all happy times for everybody. But unfortunately, as time went on, uh, it became, there started to become a bit of contrast between how she was presented in the press at the start. Um, and later on, it became more negative. In the interview, Megan talks about being silenced. Well, she talks about being silent and then... Oprah Winfrey obviously says silent or being silenced. How do you see Meghan's act of speaking out both to Tom Bradbury originally in that ITV interview and then obviously to Oprah herself? 
how do you see that as a way of reclaiming voice i think definitely and i think it's um it's like a perfect case study of celebrity agency and because so often with celebrities we have to infer we can't we don't know what agency they do or don't have we can only infer but when they are setting up the interviews to then speak directly or you know through a through an interviewer but speak directly effectively it feels directly to us then we can start to see what they would have been saying <laughs> all along it's just, again with the historical perspective the diana interview it is exactly the same it is seen as this really key moment of controlling the narrative and in both cases people have come along and undermined it and said well you know mental health issues you know should they have been protected should they have been allowed this platform um you know to to, to talk about it you know, maybe maybe they shouldn't have, maybe they should have been protected from from sharing when they are mentally ill and that's just deeply problematic when that's the only you know source of agency and rep reclamation and um I think the one thing that Harry was really articulate about last night was that, that that has ramifications for people above and beyond the individual when they have seen everything play out based on an element of their identity that they share. When they have seen someone being racially abused and they are reminded of the racism in the country in which they live, uh, you know. So it has, you know, it's it's important above and beyond um, individual agency but it's 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 funny to me because the first thing I ever wrote about Megan um I wrote at the time of the wedding the lag in academic publishing is such that by the time it came out it, it had gone from um you know, adulation to vilification so it's it was it's quite kind of awkward how quickly things turn and how out of date you can seem if you're saying something from just a few months ago but what I said was that I foresaw her be, having to be silenced, that she'd had this huge public platform as a working celebrity with a successful career before, and that going into the palace, so much protocol, so much, you know, you subsume, the individual is subsumed into the, uh, the, the responsibility to the institution. And so it's really interesting for me to see all of that being said in the interview um, when uh, it was quite controversial for me to say it in 2018. Well, yeah. Miriam, at the time of Mexit, you went and interviewed a lot of black women about how they perceived the decision of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to, to leave. Can you tell us a little bit um, about that? Because obviously that was before they, they, they spoke out, apart from that small interview with Tom Bradbury. Yeah, so the um, initial idea... Uh, uh, for interviewing black women and talking to black women in the public came from a lot of what I was seeing on my social media and a lot of the the opinions of black women on my social media so there was this kind of idea that black uh, Meghan Markle to black women is what Diana is to our mothers so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion around Diana uh, with mothers who are immigrant mothers basically uh, who just love Diana. They feel like she represented something that they'd not seen before and that she was so open and she was very welcoming and she was very loved by the nation, um, by people from every every background, which is, you know, something that was uh, 
rare. So for Meghan Markle, she's she's kind of become the Diana of our generation, um, or so it seemed to me on, on my social media. So I wanted to go out and see what people in the public were actually saying. And views were actually mixed. There was a lot of people who felt, you know, that Meghan Markle was being kind of put under the microscope by the press and she was kind of being, uh, her character was being assassinated. But there were also a lot of people who felt that it was to be expected. Um, and, you know, even in the interview, Meghan said that she'd gone in naively. And I, I thought a lot of people that I spoke to that day felt that before <laughs> uh, in 2000, and, so this was last year, 2020, they felt that it was the case that she'd gone in naively and it was almost like it was her fault. Um, and it was surprising for me to hear this, you know, from, from black women seeing what I'd seen on my social media. The idea that she was representing so many different types of people, um, just talking about reclaiming her voice, the idea that she was representing so many different types of people, uh, when it was time for her to kind of leave and she did leave, I feel like she wasn't just reclaiming her voice. She was reclaiming the voices of the people she was representing. So when she came out and did this interview, it wasn't just, I'm Meghan Markle and this is what I have to say. It was, I'm Meghan Markle and this is what I have to say and on these topics. Miriam, you talked about the naivety and I don't know, Carla and Hannah, if you feel the same. Was there a naivety in like sort of how the British press frames royalty one thing i would say is watching the documentary last night a lot of the headlines that were included were from american publications as well so i don't think that it is a solely uk issue um i think that there are specific things at stake because in, you know because of the uk's relationship to the monarchy and the way people build their national identity around ideas, well, some people build their national identity around ideas of monarchy. I mean, the, the legal systems are different, but there are protections here that there aren't there as well. And, you know, the intrusions don't stop just because you leave the UK. Well, let me bring Carla, Adam, uh, from the Washington Post in here. Carla, you're working in London for a, for a US um, publication. I mean, how... With, we've been thinking about how the British media have, have looked at, um, at Harry and Meghan. What, what's the situation over in sort of, you know, Canada and sort, of, and sort of America about how sort of Meghan has been portrayed there and the kind of support or otherwise for her? Yeah, I mean, this is this has been uh, a pretty big story in uh, the United States and in North America. Um, I think over here, it's just fever pitch. And when I was looking on, on one website, I mean, all the one British website, I think all the stories I saw on the front page were related to this. Um, that's not to say that we we didn't have half a dozen our, ourselves, and, and it gets a lot of readership as well. Um, but I, I think that um, you know there there are there is huge interest. I think that a lot of Americans are Anglophiles and interested in the royal family, and then you add in. An American princess and uh, Prince Harry and and Oprah Winfrey, who is a kind of queen herself, um, and it was always going to this particular interview was always going to get um, a lot of attention. And just to circle back uh, briefly, when you're talking about sort of agency and her her discovering her voice, um, I mean, I think what's I, th I think that you know this was 
one of the things that sort of just seems sort of quite normal to me is that high profile figures go on to uh, talk shows and, 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 and discuss these things. It's sort of quite common in America. It's how we have national conversations with ourselves. And so it, you know, of course it's different because it's the royal family, but sort of watching this um, yesterday, it, you know, we, this is, this is how we, this is how we talk to each other. Um, so I thought that that was kind of, you know, that's, it's not that it was normal and it was, you know, but at the same time, you know, you see a lot of people um, sort of, you know, go on to, to, to shows like this and certainly going on to Oprah gives it sort of extra oomph. You know, we all sort of grew up with her. She had the Oprah Winfrey show for 25 years, um, you know, so it was, it was going to get a, a lot, you know, extra attention because it was Oprah Winfrey. I think, I mean, I think Oprah is absolutely sort of key here. And I really want to um, talk about her in particular in a minute. Um, but I think the point you're making here about the kind of national conversation in the US, used to people going on and talking about these things, there's still a kind of element for the royal family, never, you know, never complain, never explain is, you know, the, the tabloid view whenever a member of the royal family sort of talks about um, their press coverage but what was sort of you know interesting were I think certainly like sort of the the two elements the, the talk about Megan and her mental health and the talk the talk about the racial discrimination that she had faced so if I can just ask about um, the the news coverage around Megan's description of how low her mental health was during her pregnancy. This has been questioned by um, several like, sort of commentators since then. I mean, what, what does it say about our, our sort of our press coverage that we still criticize and doubt when women talk about um, mental health struggles? Is, the, is this something that struck any of you? I mean, as, as entirely reprehensible and disgusting, really. I mean, I don't really know what more, what more to say, uh, but it, it's just deeply, deeply irresponsible um, to ever say anything like that. And again, we're not talk only talking about individuals, we're talking about all the people watching as well. And I just, I think there should be ramifications for what, what kind of putting someone's um you know whether someone's having suicidal ideation or not putting that up for debate that's just that's just not acceptable content um for, it kind of it, it reminded me of a lot of the discussion after diana's panorama oh we're coming back to diana sort of the the whole time but certainly there were commentators who went on at the time and, and questioned diana's uh, sanity i mean I, I can't put it like sort of more blunt than that and um, do, do we feel that we've sort of Miriam Carla do you feel that we have moved on in the way that we sort of perceive members of the royal family or women in the public eye generally when we're talking about uh, their mental health well I'm not sure if it's I'm not sure if it's an issue of uh, women and mental health or women speaking out you know because there's always I think there's always a double standard when it comes to the what the media says and what the media does you know so there's always talk about you know talk at, speak out if you're going through something there's a lot of push for men's mental health as well um 
but you know when when a man does say something he usually becomes the point of ridicule um and I think that's that's the case with uh with Megan as well you know uh is that she's spoken out and people for some reason feel that they have the right to put her her mental health and sanity on trial you know and say oh you know we're not sure if we believe her when really I think we can all agree that if somebody is saying that they're going through something it's not really ever your place to uh to challenge that you know especially if someone's had the bravery to come out and say this is how I feel. Carla would you say you know when you look at the kind of the US coverage is is the coverage similar there or is this a kind of uniquely British problem? Yeah um I've seen it more here, the sort of the, the question more here in, in the UK, the, the questioning of the authenticity of, of her comments, which I also found a, a little bit, um, you know, you know, that the royal family has done so much around the issue of mental health, you know, in the last, you know, five years or so to, to you know, raise it uh, as, as an issue that I, not that, you know, I, I found it a little bit surprising to to sort of read some of the coverage, but I haven't seen um, a ton of that in the U.S. That doesn't mean it's not there, but I, I think it's it's more prominent here. The questioning of her, you know, the, the sincerity of, of her statements. I would say that the um, the shift towards so it's the time to talk campaign that Harry and Will did, and they talked about their own trauma. Um, with losing their mother, Princess Diana, as part of that campaign. And I think even then, um, it was a real uh, like rupture with the old way of doing monarchy, with doing monarchic visibility. And it was that younger generation of royals leaning into celebrity culture, which is more confessional, which does have this like therapeutic discourse. Like you say, Carla, about how, um, how common it is for celebrities to go and you know the term that's being used is speak their truth um on oprah or other chat shows and i think that even when it was just will and harry with this time to talk campaign we were seeing a real clash of the old guard and the new guard uh, you know these two generations of monarchy and how they felt it was appropriate to conduct themselves in their relationship with with the media and of course diana was a huge kind of bridge a pivoting moment and um, there's been a lot of scholarly discussion um, about how Diana shifted that that relationship but it's not to say that the monarchy didn't always have this relation have a relationship an important relationship with the press they exist to they have a symbolic function they exist to be seen by the public therefore they exist to be mediated you know, the press get invited to all of their photo opportunities, all of these kind of charitable events and ribbon cutting and things. These are photo opportunities for the press. So there's always been um, this need, this kind of symbiotic need for monarchy and the press to be in intimately, you know, intimate with each other. Just wanted to ask a question on, on that because something that stood out to me so strongly having a special interest in media and journalism is you know, Oprah used that word, the symbiotic relationship. And, and Harry basically said, my family hasn't spoken out because they will risk their relationship 
with the tabloids if they speak out. So what are your thoughts about um, the power that tabloid journalists have? And is that really a threat or is that an excuse? I guess I'll ask all three of you that. I don't want to keep talking too much, but I do have an opinion on this. Um, I think that was one of the most interesting parts of the uh, interview for me was the admission of how close to a republic we could be. Um, the admission that this hereditary principle is is hanging by a thread. That's a that's a quote from the, the Queen Mother says that in the Netflix doc, um, document <laughs> drama, the Netflix drama, The Crown. Um, <laughs> but you know, we act as if the royal family is a given. They know better than we do. They conduct themselves in the knowledge that they have to continue to secure our favorable opinion through the, the press. Um, and we act as if that's you know, not the case, that they uh, will be eternal and everlasting. But to me, that was a crack um, where Harry revealed that um, they're aware that they are uh, you know, not on borrowed time, but are you know, dependent on our continuing goodwill. So there's a lot at stake um, in things like this. Definitely. I mean, Carla and Miriam, um, as working journalists, what are your thoughts? Like, do you think journalists have that much power? And is that okay to have that much power? And uh, especially when you're talking about literally a monarchy? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree uh, with what Hannah said, because it's, they are almost, it's almost as if they're on borrowed time. There are other countries with royal families, but it just so happens that these countries don't give the press that much access or perhaps these countries also don't have the same sorts of uh, social media that we do which also uh, which also affects the way that they're seen in the public eye I think what Harry said was actually very revealing because it kind of showed us the kind of codependent relationship that the press have uh, with the royal family you know they rely on the royal family for their stories and the royal family rely on them for their image and the way they're seen and the way they are their publicity you know how popular they are uh, if you stop talking about something for long enough people eventually forget so to have to be in the public eye whether in a in a good way or a bad way it's always bringing them some sort of attention uh, but then there's this added component of social media now where if you know certain publications say something it will carry a weight that will open a conversation on social media and have more people speaking about it. You know, there's always a hashtag for everything, even when they were reporting on the, uh, was it time to talk? Was it time to talk campaign? Yeah, there was, there was a hashtag for that, you know, so to make it just the press, it's not just the press, the, the you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they've all become almost news agencies of their own. <laughs> and now, it's important for them to stay relevant. So it was it was interesting to hear Harry say that. Uh, and I do think that it's shown just how much power the media in general, not just newspapers or tabloids, have uh, in our everyday lives. It was just really revealing that that they they obviously spend a lot of time or are aware of of, of um, uh, the British press. I just thought that was. Um, sort of quite, uh, I, I hadn't sort of seen something like that before and thought it was sort of quite, yeah, quite a remarkable statement. I want to talk about the crowd a little bit in this um, 
because Oprah brought up the crown and I was thinking about the crown as well as they were talking. And what does that say about how we perceive the royal family and how we make our statements about, particularly about Charles? Let's let's go there with Charles and, and what he talked about with Charles. Um, I, what I was thinking, and I think what Oprah might've been thinking because she talked about the crown was, oh, maybe the crown was right about Charles. I don't know what your thoughts were when he was talking about his dad. Was that really um, a bombshell for the rest of you? And especially given what was portrayed in the crown this season? But Harry looked sad at that moment. And when they said that they had watched some of the crown, I just thought how traumatic it must be to if, if he had seen the series, which depicted his own mother's um, breakdown. But I mean, I just, the, to this, the kind of linguistic slippage where I just called the crown a documentary when I went meant to say drama, just really <laughs> it's a perfect example of, 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 you know, we watch the real life kind of bombshells and scandals and gossip unfold for entertainment value in the same way that we, and we watch the crown for, to fill in our, uh, what we think is kind of this historical detail. There's a huge blurring um, between the two. Um, it, I, yeah, it's, it's, it, these are unstable categories uh, of fact and fiction now. I also thought it was interesting, and I mean, I thought it was super surprising to, to see him make those comments about Charles, and also, um, and also sort of the, the extent to which they, they, they really tried to distance the queen or, or Philip um, from, from any criticism. And, you know, I think as, as, as a, you know, one of the roles is, as, a, as a foreign correspondent is to sort of explain that to, to your readers and to explain sort of just how popular the queen remains. Um, and then if, if, you know, if you were to, um, if there was any mudslinging towards the queen, uh, you may risk, uh, sympathy, um, but you know, and then also putting into context that that Charles is much less popular, um, and, and probably, probably the crown did him, him. Uh, I don't know if it did many. Well, certainly him. Uh, it probably didn't, didn't do him a lot of uh, favors uh, in in terms of uh, perception. What I actually found really interesting was um, when Harry did the James Corden interview um, a week or so ago, and. He, I think he was asked about the crown there and he he almost said that he, I mean, obviously we have to take on board that he is now like working, you know, is doing stuff from, from net, for Netflix if we were to be totally cynical about this. But the, he said that he almost preferred the crown because it was fiction as opposed to newspaper and sort of broadcast um, coverage of the royal family where, you know, the, the lines were being blurred between sort of, what is what is correct and what is not and the society of editors that represents a lot of british editors have actually put out a statement thinking um thinking about this kind of where perception lies and they've actually put out a statement sort of denying racist treatments of um of megan and saying if it's simply the case that the Sussexes feel that the press by questioning their actions and commenting on their roles when working as royals funded by the taxpayer were being racist then they are mistaken. Um, what's your reaction to this? Is, is there a misunderstanding by the Sussexes of what royal coverage is and uh, should be? Or is that just the society of editors failing to acknowledge any form of racial bias in their reporting? 
think both are true. I think um, I think it's really damning that they need need to write that letter. Um, that's already uh, showing uh, that things have got really bad. Um, but I do also think that some of the examples that uh, Harry and Meghan point to are just that's the function of a healthy press. Now I don't think that a black woman who's pregnant and and you know just trying to integrate into a toxic institution and a racist country should feel afraid uh, of the tabloids. I do think that uh, an institution that is, you know, the symbolic representation of power, of class hierarchy, of colonialism, you know, of wealth, they should, it is right that they should feel um, aware that the press are going to hold them accountable. That's healthy, actually. That that is not problematic to me at all. That is necessary. Um, the royals are actually, in many ways, above the law, right? We we know that from Prince Andrew, uh, you know, Scotland Yard, they dropped their investigation into Prince Andrew, and we would know nothing about his friendship um, with Epstein and his. Uh, alleged rape of Virginia Guffrey, if the press hadn't for years that story, investigated that story. So the press has an absolutely essential role in keeping an eye on the monarchy. It's just that we've seen that that also, that I mean, there, there, there are unquestionably have been racist headlines. There have also been favourable headlines and there have also been perfectly ordinary headlines where the press are doing their job. But though, you know, in aggregate, those, those racist headlines, the kind of milieu of Brexit Britain, the social media that Miriam talks about, all of that together, ha that, that, that's an undeniably racist, toxic, um, you know, discourse soup there. Well, what I was interested in actually was Megan, that this is a big part of the interview that, um, with Oprah. And Miriam, I wonder what you thought of this, where um, Megan talked about the polarity between the treatment of her and the treatment of Kate Middleton. And, you know, whether it was like craving baby bumps, whether it was eating avocados, that this had been seen through a very different lens. Um, did you, so do you think that the Society of Editors are being disingenuous here? Is there, was there a sort of a racial aspect to a lot of the coverage where Meghan and Kate were concerned? I think that when people in the Houses of Parliament see so much of it that they feel compelled to write a letter and make a petition to the royal family to investigate newspapers and tabloid headlines that have colonial undertones. If it's got to that point, yet there's probably some weight to the claim <laughs> that their uh, race is playing a part in how she is being portrayed. There was a clear contrast between the way that she was portrayed, uh, you know, in comparison to Kate. Um, it's not for me to say why that might be the case, but I think we can all make our deductions. I think, you know, you're talking about the same topic, avocados. Why is it that one person is eating 
an avocado because they want to do you know they want to do their baby right and give their baby the nutrients they need they need and the other person is eating avocados and it's linked to like crazy claims you know about the way avocados are sourced and it's such a stretch you know because if they were that bad they probably wouldn't be sold in the supermarkets you know but it's I don't know how you'd manage to make that link unless you had some sort of unconscious bias you know and so I do feel that race probably might have played an issue uh, might have played a, a part in the way that she was reported um it might also just be the fact that she's the new person to pick up because she's the newest yeah well and also to point out that both Kate and Megan are in a patriarchal system and as well as Diana and there are like doubles gendered double standards so I've I've heard other people other journalists push back and say oh, well, you forget, we used to say weighty Katie or, or whatever. And it's just like, well, just because there's also sexism that doesn't negate the racism or doesn't mean that then Megan has to face both sexism and racism. And, you know, I had a student last year who wanted to do the comparison news coverage between Kate and Megan. I said, well, why don't you also put William and Harry in there because they are also part of this system, but yet they don't seem to be um, held to those similar standards. And what she found was that often Harry was being portrayed as a hero type or sacrificing for his family or saving his family. Um, whereas Megan didn't get that same narrative if we really want to expand to the entire system. And you just brought up Andrew. Um, and on one hand, yes, the press has tried to hold him responsible, but then on the other hand, when you think about what he's accused of, is it really um, enough? I don't know if you're on your thoughts on that, Hannah. Well, my thoughts on that and uh, are that, you know, the exploitation of women's bodies is as fundamental to monarchy as colonialism uh, is fundamental to monarchy. You know, it's monarchy structurally exists in domination, um, classed, raced, gendered domination. Um, so if it wasn't clear by now, I am in favor of abolishing monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wonder actually, this kind of leads me onto something sort of slightly different. I mean, it kind of took someone as an outsider to get this confessional interview. I don't think we could have had this interview with like sort of maybe a member of the, you know, the British broadcasting, you know, Tom Bradbury obviously, you know, started it in a way with that very famous interview where Megan says, not very many people have asked whether I'm okay. Um, what is it about Oprah? I'd like sort of, maybe Carla, I can come to you here. What is it about Oprah that she could kind of navigate these waters and get, get so much out of them and you know, yet sort of remain sort of empathetic? Tell us about what's so special about her as an interviewer. She's, uh, she's America's queen. <laughs> it's Oprah. Um, I mean, she's a very skillful interviewer and, and we all got to see that, um, you know, and I, I thought even just watching it, I thought, you know, she's, you know, just she's so good at, at, at uh, asking questions, but also sort of 
also sort of listening and and her responses to to those you know so when they were talking about Archie's skin color um you know when she just said what you know and then paused and then you were watching her reaction to that and and I think both for for the audience watching but maybe also for the guest interviewee it's sort of quite powerful the way she asks questions but also watching her response as well sort of like a feed a feedback loop um i i think um i mean she's she's and this is not um the first time that that she's had these kind of bombshell confessional interviews you know she's um she she's very good i was looking up the the, the ratings today and apparently 17 million people watched um that sort of prime time um which is double the amount that uh, other you know, another prime time um uh show in, in a weekly slot would get so so high figures you know she she's long had this sort of uh this this sort of polling power and i i think that she's she's a very she's a very good she's a very good broadcaster um and you know the fact that she went to oprah i think also meant that that more people tuned in I think yeah, and I think with Oprah just talking about her skills as well I mean being trained in journalism and this idea that you're entering that you have to be tough in order to get the questions and you have to be neutral in order to get the real uh, information I mean she kind of defies all of that and so what can we learn um in and she herself doesn't think of herself as a journalist. She she was at the beginning and she purposely left because she didn't want to be a news in the news category, but she is still kind of in that figure. So what can we learn in the news industry about her approach, about being tough but empathetic, I guess I would describe that. I, th I think the example that Carla gave, which is the what, is just the perfect summary in one moment where she's demonstrating incredulity. She's, she's leaving space hanging. So he's saying, do go on, we're going to need more here. And at the same time, she's communicating like a care for you know, the participant in her interview. So like in one syllable, she's doing so much there that a, a less skilled um, interviewer might just kind of leap in saying, do go on, we're surprised to hear that because of blah, 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 blah. And they filled that space and not conveyed that empathy and safety um, that, that, that enables people to continue. I think, yeah, Carla picked out the, the single crucial moment that really, I think, typifies Oprah's genius as an interviewer. I think she was, what everyone else was doing at home, she, she kind of embodied, you know, the, the whole reaction that I think most of the audience uh, would have had um, but sort of Miriam as a, as a working journalist as, as Lindsay says you know Oprah is doing something quite different from what we may have all been trained as journalists to do how did you find her as an interviewer? Well you know Oprah's been in the game for a long time so she she's a very seasoned interviewer she knows what she's doing I think what is in what is very clever is that she can say a lot without saying anything. You know, if you were watching the interview, you see Oprah makes a lot of facial expressions, but she's not saying anything. She really allows the space for her contributor to talk. Um, so for her just saying what, or just for asking a simple question, keeping the question so short and allowing the, the person who is being interviewed to make up their own mind about 
what they're actually asking and giving the time for them to really say what needs to be said. There wasn't too much interrupting happening, you know, and too much cutting in. So it's, it's a very smart technique where if you leave enough space, somebody has to fill, fill, this, fill, the, fill the air with words. Somebody has to be doing the talking and you know, that's the person being interviewed. Um, so I think she did uh, quite well at still managing to portray her emotion whilst trying to stay closer to impartial because you know she was she was saying you know from what I'd seen from what we heard from our impression overseas this is what was happening and it was less oh I thought this is this it felt less personal and so if it did feel at points where Megan was being challenged it didn't feel like the challenge was coming from Oprah but from what she'd heard and that I think made it easier for uh, Megan and Harry to open up and you know say what they felt they wanted to say. Well we're out of time now so I just want to ask you all really quickly before like sort of in, in one sentence as you say like sort of Megan and Harry opened up like sort of you know it's been a sort of bombshell interview um, will they regret it? Was it the right thing to do? Yes or no? Can I just ask you all really quickly one sentence? Time will tell. <laughs> Gosh, that was going to be mine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think their path now is towards celebrity, right? That's where their careers, that's where their future, that's where it lies. Um, and right now they are the most relevant celebrities at this centre of everyone's attention. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.